Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. How are you doing? No, literally, how are you doing? This week, NAVS, the media and marketing industry well-being charity, released the results of its consultation all ears. The results reflected poorly on the industry. A third of professionals say that they don't feel comfortable discussing their mental wellness in the workplace, and feelings of stress, anxiety, and burnout are rife throughout the industry. Fingers have been pointed at hybrid working practices, both for playing a part in the decline of mental well-being, but also in communal spirit and effective collaboration. But in a recent op-ed, columnist Nikki Kemp defended work-from-home policies as helping to level the playing field for working women and expressed anger at women being blamed for resisting coming back to the office and sacrificing newfound work-life flexibility. Today, we will discuss the NABS report, unpack that debate on hybrid working, and look at some of the biggest stories of the past week in media. Nikki Kemp joins me as well as editor-in-chief Omar Oaks. Nikki, I've just alluded to your column, and I'll ask you to comment on that in a moment. But first, I thought uh, it'd be good to get your reaction to this NABS consultation. I'm sure that you had a look at that. But just to list out a few of the figures from it, um, demand for NABS services has increased 66% over the past three years. 18% of managers say they have received mental health training, despite the fact that 42% of respondents said their line manager would be the first port of call to express mental health concerns. 39% of early career respondents said they would be unlikely to share their mental health experience over concerns their colleagues would would react poorly. And just 46% of LGBTQ plus respondents said they feel they can be themselves at work. That's compared to 69% of straight respondents. So I'm curious what your initial reaction is to some of those figures. Um, Is that about what you expected or were you surprised by the report? Yeah, I I wasn't surprised by the report. I think there is a really big say-do gap, um, particularly in in media. Don't get me wrong, I think it's really important that we have leaders sharing thought leadership articles on mental health. I think the narrative, it's okay not to be okay, has really, really had an impact on the conversation, but is it having an impact on the lived experiences of employees? This all is research suggests that no, it isn't. And I think that addressing that say do gap is so vital because otherwise leaders look not just out of touch, but they're in danger of gaslighting their own employees with their words. Mm, mm. I, yeah, I think there was a, a really good quote by one middle manager in the, the survey. Obviously, they're anonymous, uh, but they said, quote, the reality is that when you're involved in a high pressure client project, for example, a new business pitch, the behavior of the teams running these projects does not reflect mental well-being considerations. So the theory is there, but not the practice. And that was in reaction to you know receiving lots of internal comms from HR and saying, you know, here's all uh, this, this mental wellness access that you should have uh, the ability to, to access. Um, but then, you know, when push comes to shove, that that practice isn't really being instituted. Um, you know, I'm, Omar, I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts on this as well, actually, because it, it's not just uh, mental wellness where I feel like this type of saying and doing is not necessarily, you know, falling in place so, so easily. I mean, it's the same thing with like a sustainability uh, thing. I mean, that takes time, as does, I'm sure, mental wellness uh, policies as well to institute. Um, but it seems like this is a, a common issue with all organizations. I think it's particularly sensitive in media and advertising because you know we've talked a lot in recent weeks about the harmful effects of social media um not just kind of what we've read about over the last few years in terms of social media anxiety teen depression etc um but actually just this 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 um constant being hooked on your smartphone 
and the negative um, quality it has on attention in the long term. That's something that no one really wants to talk about, but it's a thing. We all kind of recognise it. We all see each other on the tube or in a coffee shop waiting for your thing to do it. I think why it's sensitive in media and advertising is because, to Nikki's point about say versus do, rationally, leaders will understand, yeah, we, we should champion neurodiversity and we should allow people to talk about mental health challenges in the workplace. But their lived experience wasn't like that when they were coming up 20 years ago. Do you know what I hear more than anyone? And it's usually, it's usually in relation to hybrid working. But I hear a lot of managers privately complain to me about younger generations who, you know, they were, use words like clock watching. Um, they t- always want to work from home. They don't want to come in. They don't mm. feel like they're part of a team. And, you know, they just have to suck it up. And, you know, no, you know, they have it so much better than I had it when I was coming through. And I hear it a little bit, if I'm honest, when it comes to, I know this is off topic, but coming into sexual discrimination and sexual harassment, where a lot of women think, well, I had to deal with that. And, you know, it shouldn't be like that. But you kind of have to toughen up a bit because that's kind of how the industry is. I think there is still a lot of that, that when the rubber hits the road, that's still what happens in terms of the doing rather than the saying, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I think that's so fascinating. And I've had similar conversations with people. And I think particularly for my generation, it is unlearning some of the things mm. that we learned coming up, some of the behaviours um, in publishing, some of the things that we collectively turned a blind eye to would be completely out of place in the modern workplace. And I think what's happening is collectively we are underestimating the scale of change when it comes to work. And there are so many individual friction points that we all face within our working week. And some of those are new friction points because of hybrid working. I can't be the only one that's done a Teams call kind of on a phone, in a coffee shop, on the way to a, in real life meetings. There's lots of these little hy- hybrid friction points, but we ha- can't lose track of the bigger picture. And arguably, if you're a leader who thinks that because you went through something like sexual harassment, other people should toughen up against it, you're in the wrong job because that's not leadership. That's looking to your past trauma as some sort of sign that you've got a tougher skin than the new generation coming through. And actually, I think there's a lot of really inspiring leaders, particularly in media, who are really passionate about ensuring those barriers, those friction points that they faced in their own careers are swept out of the way for the next generation. And I think that's far more galvanizing. I think the stories that we tell as organisations and individuals about the future of work need to be a lot more inspiring because at the moment there's a lot of conversations around, oh, you know, I've got this junior member of staff that has a dog and won't come in or, you know, mm. you just think, really, is this is this the hill you want to die on? Mm. Like, is this is this the, the level of conversation you want to have about the future of work or do you want to really look at actually what does galvanize people and it's not just about which desk is best and personal preference there's a lot of work that we all need to do in terms of learning how to lead in the hybrid era and that is different that is different and it's changed and we're underestimating the the level of that change and as a sort of default setting just blaming hybrid working for all our problems Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we need to all show our working in public 
Um, I think um, your use of the word unlearning is quite interesting, actually, because at the same as unlearning things and adapting to a new normal that never seems to become normal, <laughs> we're always in a period of transition. Where do we get there? But also, we, when it comes to the learning, that we accept that actually, I don't know. I mean, I I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, Jack, but when we have private meetings and catch-ups, I use the word I don't know quite a lot, I find. And I find that I find it quite frustrating because I want to show you, know, show you the way in terms of what we're doing and to kind of have clear policies. But at the same time, when it comes to hybrid working, my own personal view is you should own flexibility as a, yeah. as a way of working. So sometimes we need to be in the office four or five days a week. Sometimes we don't need to be in any day of the week. That's the nature of what we do. What is most important is our output. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, at the core of a lot of this mental health anxiety is that there's such a disconnection between what is expected of people and what is actually being delivered. Mm. Because when it comes to... Okay, so let's talk about something practical in terms of account management. Back in the day in agency land you got some big FMCG or car company whose office is in the Slough, not to pick on Slough, but, yeah. you know, somewhere outside of London, takes a train to get to you, you see them once a quarter, if you're lucky, right? Now, the, their client is in your face every week on Zoom, to your point, and sometimes because you're juggling kids or life gets in the way, you're having to do that call in Costa or whatever. Um, that is incredibly stressful because in terms of the outputs, I want to deliver a good service, but I'm having to do it in this kind of really unprofessional environment. And the client's expectations are completely out of whack with what I'm delivering. That is a cause of anxiety. And when management isn't um, doing a good enough job about making that situation better with managing client expectations better, I think that's at the core of things, as well as Frankly, yeah, we can all kind of recall conversations with managers who should be doing better themselves. But I think, I think it's 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 a wider problem than that. Mm. I think the client piece is so interesting because I live outside of London and and I live somewhere where I often will have a, a few people that I know, a very big brands. They will get my train into Waterloo, and the constant narrative is, you know, the agency network that they're going to visit is not good at digital meetings. They like to, they want things to be a two-day workshop. Mm. They want to have that FaceTime with clients. And actually the way that clients work, things like core hours, things like um, remote working for global brands, that is far more embedded. Some of these issues when it comes to hybrid working are very much agency issues because clients, a lot of them are not based in London. Their workforces are different because they're not based in London. Their focus points are different. Um, the way they work is different. And it's so interesting because I think I've seen so often the narrative, it's a client-based business, it's a client-based business as the answer. And yet the kind of untold narrative at the moment around this conversation is clients saying, well, oh, my agency is not very good at digital brainstorming. My agency is very demanding of my team's time, like physically. And I get that because you want to build that relationship. But we need to learn to build those relationships in a hybrid world. And that is a missing skill set. And it's hard. It's very hard to bring the same level of energy into a digital workshop as you do into an in-person workshop. Mm. In many ways, the work has to be better because you don't have great catering and a big lunch mm -hmm. to deflect from that. But we need to really actually go, 
What skills are we missing as individuals as well? You know, I'm, I really think harder about what energy I'm bringing into a virtual meeting, particularly if I'm doing something and it's crossing time zones. So it's 6 p.m. on a Monday. How am I going to show up for the start of the day in L.A.? And I think mm. actually we really need to be a bit harder on ourselves as to how we develop new skills rather than saying, oh, well, that relationship with that brand is disintegrating because we're not having enough FaceTime with them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree that it's important to do better in the way that we are currently working right now. Um, but from a mental health standpoint, of course, doing better than that, that sounds like more pressure. That sounds like, oh, you know, I'm already maybe if I'm working hybrid, I enjoy working hybrid, but a lot of people might not. Yeah. As you mentioned, that sort of wall be between work and uh, and play and, and the rest of your life kind of comes down. You might be needing to take a call while you're out getting coffee or, or uh, maybe you're, you needed to get do some laundry at home because you just needed to get something done during the work day. And that's going to cause yeah. too much noise in the background. <laughs> it's so tricky, yeah. isn't it? And um, I, I yeah. think we should be looking for progress, not perfection. And I think that's what's holding us back. And to Omar's point of saying, I don't know. Like, I think that is good. And I think what, what what's causing friction and adding to the mental health crisis is companies pretending that they've got all the answers. And that can be really, really challenging. And, and in all honesty, there's been a staggeringly bad level of communication from the media industry when it comes to working practices. Like, it is not a good idea to bring together a global network on a virtual call where the leader appears to be working from home to tell you to come back in the office three days a week. Right. While the anonymous chat system asks if, you know, he's in his supervillain era now. That's not a good look. Like, if you're in the business of communication, you have to get much better at communicating with your employees because I had so many emails about that particular scenario and about the narrative around working from home and about the optics of white male leaders that perhaps don't have huge caring responsibilities telling their workforce that nothing has changed since pre-COVID when mm. we are in the midst of a childcare crisis is, mm. is absolutely, it just, it leaves me slightly speechless and I always have something to say. Yeah, I did want to dig into that a little bit more because that was uh, your most recent column for us was about essentially, you know, blaming women for not coming back into the office when there's perfectly good reasons for, first of all, productivity hasn't declined and it's much better for, for our lives, especially if you're you're caring for you know, small children or anyone, really. Um, so uh, I, I just wanted you to highlight uh, why were you so animated and angry? I think it's really important to actually be angry about this issue. I think that anger, there's an amazing quote from this um, writer called Soraya Chemily, which is the anger we have as women is an act of radical imagination because we need to think radically differently about the workplace. Personally, I love working in an office. I am lucky in that I can afford the commute. I can afford the childcare, but we can't have these conversations in isolation. And at the moment, what's happening is people are having conversations about DNI, they're having conversations about mental health, and they're having an entirely separate conversation where they're mandating office returns. Ultimately, this has to be done on a team by team basis. 
You know, that what is what is working for one team might not be working for another. And pretending we've got all the answers is not a good idea. And also it's it is challenging and I'm aware of my privilege. It's it would be very challenging for someone like me to say, I think everyone just needs to stop complaining and just get back into the office when I know because I've spoken to women who work for agencies who've changed their hybrid working policies very quickly, who can't get childcare places, who we know from the gender pay gap are likely paid 30% less than their male colleagues. Like this is an economic issue as well. And I do think there has been some really interesting conversations and I do worry about a two-tier workforce emerging. As I mentioned, I don't live in London and my commute looks different post-pandemic. That, you know, I will sometimes be on a completely, uh, especially I get a very early train. The 627 has very few women on it. And I just mm-hmm. think we've got to be, we've got to be more forward thinking about this. We can't introduce these policies. And then when we look at the gender pay gap for these companies, is that going to move? When we look at the retention rates for these companies of female talent, is that going to move? We can't treat it in isolation. And I think it's just really important because the media narrative around this conversation is so powerful and at the moment that media narrative is being driven by status quo vested interest and a really really narrative that says oh they've that agency has been strong with its return to office policies it's like has it been strong or did they just alienate all their staff who think they're now in their supervillain era and i think that's something that's going to be really really challenging because I am getting lots of messages from women who are being squeezed out because of these decisions and men, you know, men who want to work in more flexible ways. And it's very difficult. And from middle managers saying, I'm trying to build my team in a more flexible Mm. way. And then I'm getting these mandates from on, on the mandates that are often based on existing office footprints. Yeah. Just needing to, you know, make sure that you're getting return on investment yeah. for having an office in an exp- expensive location, let's say. Yeah. And it's not going to be good. It's not going to be a good thing in the long run for the industry. I mean, I I think there are a lot of shades of grey in this conversation. And I think sometimes what happens is people will gravitate towards the bit of the conversation that that really hits with them. So they'll say, oh, such and such company have mandated four days a week in the office, so that's what we're doing. But they don't realise that that company is actually also paying for commuting costs. That company is also moved to court hours. That company is also supporting parents for the first year back, has very specific policies to help disabled and neurodiverse talent access the business. So I think... It's just about making sure that that conversation isn't some editor of the Evening Standard just ranting about his business model being challenged by new ways of working. Like that's Mm. not going to move anyone forward. I don't think that's even going to make a lot of headlines beyond LinkedIn where everyone's going to get very cross about it. Mm. Maybe that was the point, but (laughs) we've got to do better than that, surely. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to uh, uh, move us along to another topic, but I'm, I'm sure this is a conversation that's going to be needing to continue for a really long time. Um, NABS's report was not the only big report that came out over the past week. Uh, AA Work was also released, and it revealed that the TV ad market dropped 13% year-on-year over the summer, 
TV is now uh, is uh, now hurting more than it has uh, been since the 2008 recession. Um, overall, the UK market grew 1% this quarter, thanks in part to continued growth in digital formats like search and display, as well as out of home, uh, which that's continuing its post-COVID recovery. Omar, you covered the report for us, and you also cover TV a bit more generally. Um, can you ex- tell me what explains the TV dip and are advertisers leaving because audiences for let's say linear TV are, are leaving and maybe adjusting, uh, you know, is it something else? And are we expecting a recovery uh, toward the end of the year in TV? Uh, the answer to all of that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's my way of saying there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on um, generally as, as you say in the question. So it's, it's a tough market. There's no getting around it. It's a tough market for advertising in general. Um, as you say, digital formats have held up reasonably well, <clears throat> and which is a function of um, digital is just easier to turn off and on than offline formats. So you see more volatility in that market, um, particularly as more advertisers, generally um, smaller, medium-sized businesses come onto digital formats. Generally, the first place they go to is search which is why it's good news for Google, who um, do rather well in search, don't they? Um, so that's why those have held up. Um, what's interesting is the comparison between video on demand versus TV. Um, so, you know, ever since Can, when agencies um, were telling me about how bad Q2 was going to be from the numbers that they were seeing, um, they were talking about this U-shaped market that mm. we're seeing in um, TV in the UK this year, where Q1 was actually quite strong, stronger than expected. Q1's usually a weak quarter comparatively for TV advertising, Um, but actually because, number one, because of the comparables, but also the big advertisers were able to pass on price increases more easier than, frankly, they expected to. Mm. Marketing budgets didn't decline at the start of the year that much. Um, But as we've seen with the results we've reported on Channel 4, um, down only 2% for last year, predicting 6% down this year. Um, ITV um, down, um, I've forgotten the figures off the top of my head, but Carolyn McCall um, at the last earnings call talking about this being the worst advertising recession for 15 years. Um, it's been a really bad summer for offline um, television. Mitigated somewhat, but not a lot by broadcast video on demand. Um, so, yeah. Um, I could talk about the longer term trend of audiences, but everyone knows that, Mm. um, where that's not going away. Um, Interestingly, um, this morning, recording this, Channel 5 just announced that um, they're shaking up their streaming service in the UK, where it looks like My5 standalone streaming service is going to be axed, possibly put the MiFi brand will still exist, but in a merged streaming platform with Pluto TV, which is Paramount's fast service. Yeah, um, I've, I've not used either of those services. I mean, can you explain to me the importance of uh, of that shift? Uh, what, I mean, what's what's going on in the bigger picture, connecting it back to the bigger picture with that news? Well, the bigger picture, obviously, as, an, as any child will know who doesn't know what EastEnders is, is younger generations are watching um, less offline TV, if any offline TV. Yeah. Um, in the office yesterday, they had neighbors playing on our on our TV in the kitchen. And in the corner, you can see the what's that Amazon brand Freebie, which, yeah. which hosts neighbors yeah. now. And um Guy Pearce was in it. I didn't know Guy Pearce was in Neighbours. Um, oh. But yeah, he is. Everyone Australians in Neighbours. Um, there is this, obviously, the longer term trend of um, people watching TV on streaming formats. And not just streaming formats, but watching on TikTok and short form and not wanting to watch long form content at all. That's the that's the wider problem. Why that's relevant to Paramount and Channel 5 is that 
Their flagship streaming brand is Paramount Plus. Take up in the UK. It's a bit difficult to get exact handle on numbers because when they launched in the UK, a lot of people had Sky Cinema and they just got got it for free. And there were other kind of kind of discounts you can get. So we yet to see what the true picture of Paramount Plus is. But um, interestingly, in the last Ofcom Media Nations report, um, if you look at Channel 5's total audience, they estimated that only 4% was being viewed on My5, the broadcast video on demand mm. service, versus 96% on linear. Um, and I know Channel 5 has actually done quite well in linear in the last few years. It's been very good with non-entertainment formats in particular. But 4%, that is not good reading. Yeah. Um, so something has to change. And they think Pluto TV... You know, well, merging Pluto, Pluto TV, much bigger. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about fast um, being this hugely growing, emerging. And if if anyone has um, Sky or cable, Virgin Media cable, they're, they're going to see all these fast channels pop up. It's not just a, a YouTube thing anymore. Fast channels are all over the place. Um, Roku devices, other streaming platforms, all these kind of like you know the the, the home shopping thing, the Graham Norton chat show channel, um, very cheap to make, very um, efficient. Um, advertising funded TV um, Pluto TV owned by Paramount is the world's biggest it's got something like over 400 content partners it's in 35 markets now it's absolutely huge um, it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. I mean Nikki do you have any thoughts on on the TV market yourself I think it's so fascinating um, because I think what we're seeing is a, a real fundamental shift in what constitutes event TV as well And also as a parent, you want your TV to be long form content for your children. Mm. I I think there is a general narrative amongst parents around concern with attention spans, concern with what they're watching and how not that the quality of the content is bad, because actually there's absolutely phenomenal content on YouTube shorts. Really interesting. And I've loved watching my my eldest is passionate about nature And just watching how I can get him to watch Blue Planet with me. But also he's showing me things that he's found on YouTube, Brave Explorer, these different types of shorter shows and formats, you know, where a guy's just being stung by a wasp over and over again. Like Coyote Peterson or something. (laughs) (laughs) I do like that guy. (laughs) But I think it is interesting because to your point on Carolyn McCall's point around this is the worst advertising recession we've seen since the global financial crisis. There is a huge shift happening, but at the same time, I look at some of the event TV that we've seen just recently, the Rugby World Cup, and the formats are not, they are not engaging. They are not developing fast enough. And I think it's really interesting as to what the challenge is for long-form content to really develop in a really, really strong way. The way you talk about Paramount, you look at something like Yellowstone and the impact they've had, like event TV looks very different, but I feel the broadcasters need to reinvent event TV because Mm. audiences watch event TV. They want it. They want it in different formats. Yes, they'll watch short form formats of it, but actually when we look at some of those tent poles of the advertising calendar, they are boring. They are the formats have not evolved. They just need a refresh. I completely agree. I mean, when you think about why um, people watch appointments of you television nowadays, it's generally they want to see news bulletins and live sports, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, the, uh, this is my hobby horse in terms of sport programming. The formats just 
that there is not enough innovation. Um, apart from Sky, which kind of tries things, you know, the latest thing with football is like they have a thing called game mode where they kind of, they make the viewing experience a bit more like you're watching a FIFA game, you know, the, the, the computer game. Mm. Um, so you can see kind of more of the screen. And, you know, they've yeah. done stuff with 3D TV in the past. But in terms of, I think what Nikki's trying to say, stop me if you're wrong, but in terms of just a general format where okay, here's today's match and here's ex-pro pundit, blah, 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 and now to commercial. And yeah. here's a player interview and it's all softball questions and it's some inarticulate athlete, you know, saying, yeah. oh, I want to give it 110%. Yes. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's Women's World Cup, Men's yeah. World Cup, rugby, cricket, whatever it is. Um, I, you know, I, this is why I, I praised The Athletic before. Now, which is just the New York Times' yeah. sports journalism yeah. department, right? Because... I, I like podcast formats and long-form um, authors' content in which you have informed journalists, sorry to toot my own horn, but yeah, yeah. journalists who are actually giving different perspectives. Why are these formats like Rugby World Cup on oh, ITV, etc.? So why don't you just bring in more informed people, people from different voices? Yeah. Frankly, more women, some of the best pundits. I'm, I'm not yeah. saying this because you're, 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 yeah. you're, you're such a champion of um, women's <laughs> rights in the workplace, but um, some of the best pundits, particularly on football I've seen, are people like Enia Luko, um, Jill Scott, yeah. um, um, Steph Houghton. They're incredibly good. Um, and we just need a, a more diversity. 100%. Mm. And the idents as well. I was sat there just thinking, I, this land, you know, Land Rover Defender, it could have been like, 20 years ago and it would have been the same ident and you just think come on like there's there's so many opportunities now to do things differently and it's so it's still so valuable event tv that attention that moment where we're just together with our friends or with our families and they're just chucking it Mm. down the toilet with this just is a car next to a statue of a rugby player. Like, really? I think, I, think it's really? Pl- I think it's playing it safe. I think it's yeah. playing it safe. If it ain't broken, yeah. fix it. And you have because- to be careful what you wish for as well. I mean, because like to go the, the completely opposite end, ESPN in the US is maybe the worst sports product it's ever been. And that's mostly because they're trying to make things really exciting. And here's debates. And, and well, frankly, it's been co-opted by political news as well, especially in the US. So that that's its own can of worms. But I think... I hate the content that is meant to grab attention around these big events, like just people debating on uh, dumb points, frankly, because they're they're maybe not very good informed journalists. Or they're they're just yeah. talking heads. So I think you need to be careful not to go too far the other way and to say, well, let's make this exciting with new formats because and let's take some big risks and just put some people out that are going to say something newsworthy in and of itself, as opposed to just providing a really good service around especially a a sporting event Uh, that's i mean that's my take i just had to rant about espn for a little bit and don't get me wrong i think it's brilliant that we have this free to air you know Mm. that that it's accessible to everybody but actually the game and the commentary is not actually very accessible and they're not really doing anything to make it particularly interesting for people who aren't already fans well uh, you're into rugby i'm not into rugby my <laughs> wife is into rugby and whenever like, we're, we're sitting down like um an eye on the the final on the weekend and i'm i'm just constantly asking her what are the rules like, what what what, like, <laughs> you, have, what? there need, are like four different types of offside I, don't, yeah. I have no idea and I she's she's it. the same to me when i watch football right um but the 
they, they could be more inclusive, these broadcasters, 100%. in terms of, like, for someone like me who likes sport and might like rugby, if I understood it, yeah. just kind of take a bit of time to kind of explain to me what is going on. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, this is this is becoming its own tangent. But my, my <laughs> that is a huge gripe of mine with all sports, even the ones that I know how to play very well. I would love to see people break down plays and play design, especially yeah. for like football, which I'm still, I mean, I know the rules, but I don't, I don't know why certain uh, uh, players are in certain positions and what they're doing there. Um, and this is even the same thing with like American football or basketball. Like, tell me what is actually going on in the head of a coach. Don't just tell me guy puts ball in basket. Um, yeah. You know, it'd be great to see more breakdowns. Definitely. Yeah. And they, yeah. you know, and um, they all have their own streaming services nowadays. Just do a simulcast on your streaming yeah. service where a dummy like me can see the, <laughs> the ITVX version yeah. of the World Cup final and kind of just break it down. And But that's what Formula yeah. One has done so brilliantly through storytelling. They need to do it through storytelling. But unfortunately, with rugby, they're just telling the same old stories. It's just lacks creativity. Very, very, very dull. The game is beautiful, but the mm. way it's marketed is just very, very, very rubbish. Mm. Be, be more creative around sport. <laughs> and I would add also as well um, that in terms of event TV, bring back like weekly big shows. I mean, it, it, we got, we've gotten away from the event of just watching the latest episode of Game of Thrones, which you know, I mean, HBO or Sky in this country still still has some of those, um, but it's too much. Like, here's the entire se- series. You know, here's eight episodes. Watch it all at once. There, there can be an event around that, but then it doesn't last very yeah. long. Um, and and I'd miss just getting together to watch like a, a, a serial. Um, I mean, that that's my soapbox. But <laughs> it's, it's such a powerful vehicle from a brand perspective, and then you can it diffuse it all out into short form content. It can have lots of different I think Stranger Things did that beautifully there was so many incredible activations with brands like Doritos that were just really additive not interruptive and that I think is such a rich place and I still think that's going to be huge because that attention economy that magical moment when you've got everyone together just focused on the same thing that cultural currency is still like it's so powerful yeah yeah. All right. I want to transition us into a rapid fire round. Um, Nikki, if you didn't know, I've been making good use of sound effects recently. Uh, if you go over a minute uh, and I've got a timer here uh, in your response, I will have to give you a sad trombone. <laughs> um, so we're, we're just going to run through a quick, quick topics and uh, just want your, your initial take uh, on some of these and Omar, you as well. So first, uh, it's still earning season. I mentioned at the top. Uh, yeah, last week Meta released their earnings, which were very positive. So ad spend coming back. Reality Labs still lost money. That's their VR team. But uh, Threads, their Twitter competitor, now has over around 100 million users. That's about one fifth of Twitter's uh, supposed user base. If you believe Elon Musk, which uh, I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, I wrote about that last week, but I wanted to hear first from you, Omar and Nikki. How do you view Meta today? Um, should they have renamed to Meta? Should they have stuck around for something else? Um, I'll throw it to Omar first. You've got one minute. Uh, rebrand to Meta Platforms is just a big jazz, jazz hands move by Mark Zuckerberg to distract from all the, the brand safety issues they have, teen depression issues they had with Instagram, and the fact that social media, as we've 
covered in this conversation earlier, people are wising up to the fact that it's generally not good to be going onto any smartphone digital device and just kind of scrolling through it aimlessly, let alone all those more serious issues. Um, social media is becoming generally less attractive as a media format. Um, I think um, people are wising up to the fact they need to be more intentional with their media usage more generally. Um, and it was basically just to say, hey, we're about the metaverse now. Mm. But guess what? The stock, the stock price has rebounded in the last 18 months because of moves into AI, nothing to do with the metaverse. And they've probably invested hundreds of billions in that, more than the whole R&D of Apple in the same amount of time. Mm. Uh, Nikki, perhaps you could talk a little bit about, are you on threads? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm lurking on threads. But I think it's really interesting because Meta has proved itself to be an incredibly resilient business. I think it does have a lot of, issues around it but from an advertiser perspective from a small SME perspective it is an incredibly engaging platform um, I do think that there are some really interesting learnings from metaverse uh, top of the list the fact it didn't exist and the top of the list being the propensity for the media market to galvanize around a single word or theme regardless of whether that is actually going to be um, something that's really, really dominant. I think that it was a real lesson. I think there's a lot of learnings for, for the whole industry around the hype mm. versus the actual take-up. Um, I think Zuckerberg called this year the year of efficiency for Meta, which is not very galvanizing as a, as a statement, I have to say. <laughs> but Threads is really interesting. I think it's going to be one to watch. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys both did really great at uh, keeping under a minute. And uh, I, I agree. One to watch. I think we've talked about separately, Omar, the fact that uh, especially like now is the time if you're going to get into like a, a social media you have to get in when it's still early before it gets, you know, too many advertisers come in and it almost ruins the user experience. So, um, you know, we'll see if, if they're able to continue growing. Um, and it's also, I should note, fun to note that uh, uh, X uh, saw its valuation cut in half in the past year. That news came out <laughs> this week as well. So, Ouch. Yeah. Um, Based on their own estimates, by the way. Yes. So, yes. so Elon Musk bought the company for $44 billion. And um, in documents they filed at the beginning of this week, they um, they said it was more like 19 billion. But that's just their own valuation. It could be a lot It could lower. be worse. Yeah. Like, it, you know, this man may have devalued this company by as much as $30 billion. Yeah. Well, just... his problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, more earnings. Amazon grew its ad revenue 26% last quarter. At the Future of Media, Ian Whitaker suggested that advertising probably makes up about half of its profits. Um, AWS is also very profitable for them. Um, it, Amazon's basically a silo in and of itself. Um, how should agencies deal with the beast that is retail media and um, uh, Amazon more specifically? Uh, Nikki, why don't I start with you? I know it's a tough question to answer in a short amount of time. I think it's such a great question because it is top of the list from a brand perspective in terms of social commerce. Um, the number one thing I would say is that currently a lot of CMOs do not understand what their media agencies are talking about. I think media agencies have done a really good job of paying a lot of money to digital specialists in this space, which are absolutely necessary. And I think there's a lot of lower funnel um, activity that's really driving Amazon. But the fundamental issue particularly for the media industry, is you need to talk about social commerce in a way that actually makes sense to brands. They need more T-shaped people, people that can talk about the importance of Amazon 
to somebody who has not grown up with this this whole area of social commerce and retail media. They've grown up with traditional shopper marketing. They need to much better navigate that from a client um, relationship perspective. But I think it is a huge, huge growth area. I think we are only just touching the surface of it. Mm. And I think it's dual because Amazon is an incredible platform, regardless if you're selling via Amazon or not. Like it's it's just phenomenal. It's just so fascinating to me. Mm. Uh, Omar, what, do you have anything to add on, on, I mean, what should agencies be, be looking to do in your in your opinion? I think generally the big danger with retail media is it just, it becomes another search where it's just Amazon, Google Shopping, maybe Shopify as well. It just becomes this area where long-term there's no real competitive advantage for brands. It's just somewhere that you have to be. Um, there's no real kind of interesting or innovative use about consumer data. Um, and again, it comes down to the fundamentals of actually reaching people through advertising and media planning. Um, that's the worry I have. And I think that agencies, to Nikki's point, are geared up to do the media planning bit, but actually leveraging the social commerce bit, I'm, you know, I think the jury's out. Mm. Um, uh, Boris Johnson is on GB News to move us ahead. Yay! Uh, uh, <laughs> our own columnist, Stephen Arnell, jokingly predicted that that would happen this year in an article last December. Um I just want one word from each of you uh, that describes how you feel about Johnson presenting on the broadcaster. Omar, I'll start with you. What's the opposite of unmissable? Missable. <laughs> okay, Nikki. Underwhelmed. Oh. <laughs> Last question, Nikki, before we leave, uh, I am obliged to ask every guest that comes on here going forward uh, a key question, um, and I haven't asked this of you before, and that is, what makes you passionate about media? I just love it. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Unashamedly obsessed with it. I love the products, even when I'm moaning about them, like the Rugby World Cup. I think they are genuinely really powerful cultural moments. I love the people that work in the industry. I love the change that's happening, even something like social commerce. I love the ability to just dive into a sector that is constantly, constantly evolving. I'm someone who predominantly for my career, worked on magazines. Most of those magazines don't exist anymore. It wasn't my fault, honestly, I promise. <laughs> but I love the ability to work in an industry that is constantly changing. It's constantly changing. And that means you can actually genuinely be creative all of the time. Mm. Oh, I mean, uh, that's a really lovely answer, actually. Um, we will have to leave it there. I will say uh, well done to all of you for giving short answers. I can give you an applause instead I just make sure. I really like that one guy who's yelling extraordinarily loud in that. Yeah, in that, 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 was um, that was <laughs> All right. Well, I have to leave it there. Uh, thank you, Nikki Omar, for joining me. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. If you like what you hear, guess what? You can read our stuff at our website, themedialeader.co.uk, where you can sign up to our daily newsletter in the UK of analysis, opinion, and commentary about what's going on in media and advertising. You can also find us on YouTube. We are posting video interviews and clips from our live events. And don't forget to check out our LinkedIn page, which is often a very interesting way to see what people in the industry are saying about our articles and the issues we write about. Anyway, get back to work. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.